Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the anime podcast. For the past two weeks we've been looking at some fairly juicy and exciting issues, but I'm afraid it's time to return to the dry and loveless topic of policy this week, as we digest Philip Hammond's non-bombshell budget. Yes, that's right, this year there were no big rabbits being pulled out of hats, no enormous surprises, there wasn't even really any decent jokes. But there were some interesting tax stories, a host of possible regulatory changes on the horizon, and of course, pensions are being left alone for now. What a story. Here to talk that through with me is our senior reporter, Jack Gilbert. Hello, Jack. Hi, Ollie. And I'm also joined by Citywide Head of Investment Research, Frank Tolbert. Hello, Frank. Hello. Um, now, both of you, I thought the budget this year wasn't particularly exciting this year, so I have prepared something better, which is a quiz. How well do you know your budgets? Do you know your Lawson from your Osborns? Uh, very little difference, in fact. Debatable. Do you have a major problem, wink wink, remembering the 1990s? All will be revealed in this special budget quiz. It's ten questions. They're all true or false answers. You have ten seconds on each one. Shall we? Oh, I'm scared. I'm scared. Excellent. <laughs> true or false? Gordon Brown used the 2002 budget speech to put a 1% NI contribution increase on employers, employees and the self-employed on all earnings above £4,614. It sounds too uh, precise not to be true. I'm true. saying that definitely sounds true, yeah. It's true. Brown used the budget to fund his NHS reforms, including a new audit system for the health service. Number two, true or false, Geoffrey Howe had a dog called Budget. Again, I'm, that, that, that sounds very likely to be true. Geoffrey Howe was the Chancellor under Major or that, Thatcher? So Geoffrey Howe did a lot of jobs. Uh, it's true. Howe was Thatcher's first Chancellor from yes. 1979. And he was Foreign Secretary as well. He also served as Foreign Secretary. He was also Leader of the House of Commons okay. and Deputy Prime Minister yeah. until 1990 oh. when Thatcher was famously ousted. I think the, the budget dog thing is is likely to be true. Yeah, interesting uh, interesting anecdote that um, John Burkow's dog is called Order. Is it? It is, true story. God, Jack, I'm meant to be cheering. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna go false. It's Wait, true. Yes. Uh, number three, true or false, the longest ever budget speech is believed to have been given by Winston Churchill. True or false? I thought it was last night. <laughs> no. Is it true or false? It though? wasn't last night. The, uh, Winston Churchill, was he ever Chancellor? I'm not sure he was. I think he was never Chancellor, although I'm now doubting myself. I'm going to go false because he was never Chancellor. Yeah, I'm going to have to go true. It's false. Because he was never Chancellor? He was, I don't think he ever was Chancellor. The, actual, the longest uh, budget speech ever given was believed to have been uh, by uh, uh, William Gladstone. Uh, on the 18th of April, 1853. It lasted for four hours and 45 minutes. Wow. So if you think you've got it hard, Jack, <laughs> and Frank. He must have drunk a lot of whiskey. And th this is the next question. Question four, <laughs> true or false, if a chancellor wishes, they may refresh themselves with vodka during the speech. Well, I don't know about that because I feel like vodka is, isn't a very British drink. And the... I don't know, in the early 20th century, you know, I think that there would be a bit of animosity towards drinking a Russian drink. So I'm going to say false on that one. Yes, yeah, false. It's actually true. Uh, so basically, as far as I can see, the Chancellor can drink whatever alcoholic drink that they want. But no one else in the chamber can. Um, so the rules still permit that. Number five, true or false? 
The 2015 emergency budget, there were two budgets in 2015, saw Secretary of State for Work and Pensions Ian Duncan Smith lose his shit in delight at an announcement that George Osborne would donate Treasury funds to his local air ambulance in his constituency. True or false? I, I'm, I'm saying true. Definitely, I think that's true. I think that's oh, true. I think so badly, I need to gain some ground. False? Frank, you're correct. It is, in fact, false. Uh, Really, Jack, you should have gotten that. Ian Duncan Smith actually raised his arms in delight at the introduction of the national living wage. Oh, really? Uh, which was in that budget. And that's a moment that we're actually going to recreate now as you read out this little bit of speech from Osborne's uh, text. Go for it. Is this Os what Osborne says? You be Osborne I and I'll be Ian Duncan Smith. I can't do an impression of Osborne, so I'm, I'm going to say it in my normal voice. Because let me be clear, Britain deserves a pay rise and Britain is getting a pay rise. I am today introducing a new national living wage. Yes! Fantastic! That's exactly what he did. Outstanding recreation. It's a, leg it's a legendary budget moment. Uh, should we move on? Number six. True or false? Chancellor Hugh Dalton's drink of choice was a milk and rum for his budget speeches. Um, that sounds very plausible. I I'm saying yes. Sounds like a horrible drink. No? It's true. Uh, so one to Frank, nil, uh, one to Jack, nil to Frank. Dalton served as Chancellor from 27th of July 1945 to 13th of November 1947. Uh, bonus bit of information, he resigned in 1947 after leaking his last budget inadvertently to a journalist while the markets were still open. Wow. Could you imagine Scandal. that happening today? Scandal. Number seven, let's move on. Uh, the word budget originates from the section of the French word baguette, which according to legend was once used by Napoleon to smuggle that's money incorrect. out of France. That's incorrect, that's not, that's, I'm saying no, no, Ooh, incorrect, it's false. Yeah, I can go false Jack as well. is all over that, that was <laughs> fake news, it's false, I made that up. Budget is in fact derived from the French word bougette, meaning little bag. Number eight, true or false? The Evening Standard newspaper in 2013 apologised after it published details of the budget on Twitter before one George Osborne delivered his speech. That's a tough one. So 2013, Twitter wasn't that old. People weren't really sure how to use it and what was going on with it. Sounds a bit thick of it there, Wally. So I think, I think that's too thick of it. I'm saying false. That's not true. Frank? Yeah, likewise, false. It's true. Oh, wow. The Standard published a photo of the newspaper's front page featuring news of cancellation of a fuel duty rise and an increase in the personal allowance. Osborne later asked the Permanent Secretary at the Treasury to conduct a review of the practice of releasing embargoed budget information in advance of the speech, which would be pretty convenient if he wasn't now editor of the same paper. <laughs> oh, wait, he is. How times change. <laughs> Number nine, we're rifling through this. Several hours before last year's budget in March 2017, Philip Hammond's ministerial car was pelted by protesters armed with eggs and tomatoes. Now, he wasn't in it at the time, but two arrests were made and both men were released without charge. This was last budget. Yes, 2017. I don't rem remember that no, at I all. I don't remember that. That's false. It never happened, though it probably should have done. <laughs> Number 10, true or false, Philip Hammond's salary triggers the additional rate of tax. The additional rate of tax starts at 100,000. Uh, so, no, 150,000 is the 50% tax rate. Okay. Or what no. were you thinking it was? No, no, no. I, I, I say no. I'm saying his additional salary. I'm saying it's very close, but I'm saying yes. It's actually false. Hammond's MP salary of £77,379 and ministerial salary on top of that of £69,552 
combine to make a whopping 146,931, which does not go over the additional tax. Which is 150,000. Threshold of 150,000. So you do get a point for that, Jack. Uh, he will pay the higher rate instead of 40%. So how does it work? How does it tot up? So Frank, you have one, two... You're doing it wrong. I've been on the wrong side. So I've actually been swapping them over wrong. Uh, Frank, you have one, two, three, four out of ten. And Jack... It's a resounding victory for you, which is one, two, three, four, five. You have six out of ten. My history degree has not gone to waste. So with that over and done with, uh, let's move on to the budget itself this year. What, in your opinion, Jack, was the most significant announcement we heard? The most significant? I think that the personal allowance increases were and the 40% um, the, the 40, 40 tax rate increased to £50,000, those combined, I think, were the two most significant announcements he made. I think that in the Treasury documents, the combined total of these costs was £9.6 billion. This is like mastermind, isn't it? And, like, ding! <laughs> and although maybe we should check that. Uh, this is ballpark figure, but that's pretty, that's pretty spot on. It was a lot of money. I, th I just think that that affects a huge amount of people, and it also was symptomatic of what this budget was in the fact it was giving away a lot of things mm. to a lot of people you know the raising the the personal allowance rates to 12 pounds uh you know that will be a huge boost to pensioners a lot of them don't have much money at much outgoings but a lot of them won't be earning, their income will be, you know, £20,000 with the state pension, £25,000. So having another, having an extra there personal, in the personal allowance category, I think, will, will definitely boost them. And I think it showed that, that Hammond was really, um, he, was, he was trying to give back, not raise taxes, but actually lower taxes in this budget. Um, and, and yeah, I, th I think that was the biggest announcement he made. Mm. Frank, were you actually following it, or were you sort of knee-deep in your asset management research? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't actually following it as closely as previous years, mainly because it was quite boring. Yeah, I, th I thought overall it fell a bit flat. Um, we're heading towards Brexit uh, more painstakingly and awkwardly than that time that Michelangelo completed his Sistine Chapel mural with just a fine-tip biro. Uh, where do all these announcements sit with the big elephant in the room, which is, of course, Brexit? Well, I think that was why the budget was boring. You know, why would he have made some controversial and, and risky announcements now if in a month's time that's when the final outcome or, or one, certainly on the withdrawal agreement, we find out whether or not that will, we will get one and whether or not it will get through Parliament. Mm -hmm. I think having a controversial budget now, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a short shelf life, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, of both the Chancellor and the, and the Prime Minister at the moment. And I think that number 10 would have, the message would be loud and clear that why would you do anything to jeopardise our positions, both our positions at this juncture, when you know full well that things are not looking great for me, the, the Prime Minister, and, you know, by effect, you, the Chancellor, because they're, you know, in symbiotic relationship, they're both dependent on each other for survival, really. So I, I think that, they're, they're, that given where we are now with Brexit negotiations, and given the amount of no unknowns, you know, going forward with the, the deal itself and, and possible no deal. I think it would have been a stupid mistake of the Chancellor to have really pushed himself out there and, and, mm. and, and made a controversial budget. So I think that, you know, the reason we, we didn't get a, an exciting budget was because because of that big 
elephant in the room that, that, that Hamid really didn't refer to very much yesterday. Um, yeah, do, do you agree, Frank? I don't really have much view on it, to be honest, Jack. Do you think cut. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that, obviously. Uh, do you think, uh, I mean, Spreadsheet Phil, he, he made a play of you know, his confidence that we will get a Brexit deal. I don't think he is that confident. I think maybe yesterday was, you know, he, he obviously had to do something. He had to show that the, um, you know, the Treasury is still this sort of strong institution with lots, you know, lots of firepower, as he mentioned in the speech, left. Um, but I'd, I don't know, I feel like if you're in government right now, you'd be thinking, hmm, this is cutting it pretty fine. Still a lot of internal conflict in the cabinet. Um, things are slightly at deadlock over the Northern Ireland border. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, he can't be that confident that they're going to get a deal. I, I think I think you're right, Ollie. I think I think one of the most interesting things that's happened recently in politics that wasn't really made a big thing about was on the day that David Davis and Boris Johnson resigned from cabinet um, in September, mm. the chief whip for the Tories went and had meetings with a number of Labour MPs and, and met a lot of from people from the Labour department. Labour. Um, this was shadow front bench. Exactly. Well, certainly MPs and kind of just asking about the support and asking about the Brexit deal. And that is really unprecedented mm. to have the the Tory chief whip going to the other side and, and speaking to Labour MPs on such a momentous day that, you know, to the figureheads of the cabinet resign. And I think obviously the reason he's done that is because any Brexit deal that's brought forward to Parliament is so dependent on what Labour and the other parties do. You know, you've got the SNP, got 30 MPs, the uh, Dems in 10, DEP obviously about 10, and then Labour kind of 280 something. And I think, you know, the, the Tories, not only do they need their own MPs to back this Brexit deal, but they need um, support from other parties. And I think if that doesn't come forward, they'll, you know, they're, they're screwed really. They need, they need support, cross-bench support, they need support from other parties. And I think you know, that means that the, the people, even within the government, even within number 10 and number 11, they might have much more of an idea about what their own MPs are yeah. going to do, but there still is that huge amount of uncertainty about what people from other parties are going to do. And I think that uncertainty means, you're right, I think that, that Hammond doesn't know if there's going to be a Brexit deal. And I think that is, you know, a very difficult position for a Chancellor to be in to set forward the spending and taxation policy for this country when you are still in the dark about whether or not mm. there will be a Brexit deal. And, you know, if, if there's no Brexit deal, you know, obviously things will get pretty rough. Mm. And so today, you know, further predictions uh, of a recession, a sort of mild recession, uh, but that could trigger yet more austerity, which would be, you know, another uh, kettle of fish entirely. Um, Let's get on to the policies that were in the budget. Um, we had this big announcement on pensions that was sort of trailed a couple of days before the budget itself about getting DC schemes to invest in UK tech, uh, sort of the patient, patient capital, capital side. Yeah. Um, is this just another sort of fanciful pensions idea that comes out in a budget that makes the government look forward thinking and imaginative? Or is there some substance to it, Jack? I think my first indicate, uh, first suggestion here is yes, this is very fanciful. I think that uh, the current pension system we have, there is no money in it. People in uh, predominantly in auto-enrolment schemes at the moment who are coming through the system mm. and they have hundreds or several thousand pounds saved up mm. in their DC arrangements with their, with, their pension, with their workplace pension provider. I think obviously that is not enough money that's in these schemes. And I think that 
what what those schemes need, what that money needs. It, it, they don't need risky investments. Mm. They don't need to invest in startup companies who, you know, so many of them fail and collapse. And companies on the AIM stock exchange, as I'm sure you're aware, Frank, are very risky investments. And I think that because there is such few amount of assets in those small DC pots that are accumulating, that to, to kind of jeopardize some of those pots by saying some of that money should be invested in these startup AIM stocks um, that, you know, pharmaceutical companies or tech tech startups, I think is, a, is quite a silly idea. I think the only saving grace for the policy could be if there is a very clever, cleverly worked system whereby money is pooled from schemes or even multiple schemes, and mm. some of that is used through to create funds like a, you know Woodford's Patient Capital Fund or possibly a bad example, but funds that <laughs> it is at the moment. Fun, funds that can invest in you know startup companies and you know companies that could become really big tech tech companies, but I think it would have to be pooled over a large number of um, schemes because I think the risk for small pension pots of putting money into high-risk investments is just quite a stupid mm. suggestion from the Chancellor. And you can already see all these problems to do with you know, people who, you know, they're, they're effectively being told through auto enrolment that everything will be fine as long as they do nothing. You know, and, and what happens when suddenly everything is not fine? And you can see the sort of repercussions from that, the implications for and regulation and redress, and it could be a bit of a nightmare, right? Um, Why are you making the point, actually, so going back to the tax brackets being brought forward a, a year early in terms of the relief that we get, why are you making a point that auto-enrollment is kind of going to cancel out any benefits? I, yeah, so that, I mean, that, I think that is true. I think, you know, auto-enrollment contributions in April next year go up to 5% for employees, minimum 5%. A lot of them are now at three. I think some might even be at two. So you, two or three percent jump mm -hmm. in in automobile contributions. That basically norm, can, cancels out for certainly people on the lower um, for the twenty percent tax rate bands. That basically will almost cancel out. Maybe there'll be a slight sl a slight increase if you talking about ten pounds or so here. Do you think that was deliberate? You know, Phil looking at automobile thinking, oh, we should probably make sure that people don't opt out and contributions <laughs> go up. Or is that just sort of... Uh, <laughs> I think there was some deliberateness in that and that kind of refutes my earlier point that that was the biggest policy. However, what I don't think... I mean, you know, the policy is all about the way it's perceived by the public mm. and people don't realise about autumn enrolment, they don't know about autumn enrolment, so they don't realise these autumn enrolment contributions are going to go up. Maybe next April when they hit 5%, 8% combined, or 5% certainly from employee contributions, that will cause a bit of a political stir, maybe. Although, you know, I think the society... What FCA research has shown us at the moment is people aren't paying attention to these small amounts coming out of their salaries. Mm. They're not paying attention to where their investments are going. They're not paying attention to price on in investment costs. So I, d I don't think it will have a huge impact. Have you opted out? I have not opted out, Frank, no. Have you opted no, out, Frank? No, no, not at all. Neither, none of us have opted out. Well, well you'd hope not, really. <laughs> Elliot, have you opted out? Elliot is shaking his head. Um, very good. Well done, everyone. Um, another policy that came through the budget yesterday, the digital services tax. This is Phil going it alone. This is his kind of big moment where he's like, I've had enough of all this umming and ahhing on the international stage about what we do about Facebook, Google, etc. Uh, we're going to do something about this. Um, that's pretty clever move politically, isn't it? Given that you know Osborne's reputation was somewhat sullied by his... Uh, 
quick and easy deal that he did with Google in 2016 over their tax arrangements. But the question remains, you know, will it be successful? Will, will these big companies find a way of getting out of it? They're a soft target at the moment, though, as well. It's pretty easy. It's not so the same climate. You're saying it's populist, Frank. <laughs> we wouldn't go that far. But they're a soft target. But yeah, they're, they're a soft target. They've been hounded in the media. Tech isn't as, as pure as it was under Osborne's reign. Now it's been tarnished quite significantly. I agree. And we've discussed this in the podcast in the last couple of weeks, that actually this year it's been pretty, pretty bad for tech. I mean, if you look at the back end of last year, I mean, I'm not sure in terms of you know, where they were on the, on the actual indexes, just putting that to one side, but sort of reputation of tech has really... Uh, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's taken a hammering, and that's part of the reason that, that we're seeing the falls that we're seeing. But aren't we jumping the gun a little bit on that? We don't <laughs> want to get straight into it. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We'll discuss that <laughs> later, Frank, so that you don't run out of things to say during the podcast. Um, they say that tax doesn't have to be taxing. Um, we were talking about budget giveaways, um, but some people who are going to have to look very carefully about their tax, at their tax arrangements are the contractors. Yes. Um, and this is all to do with personal service companies, your yes. consultants. And that specific measure yesterday was all about looking at the relationship between consultants, contractors and bigger businesses. The Treasury's gone after the public sector, changed the relationship there. It's gone after the sort of the, the smaller scale business dealings. This is a policy that's going to bring in billions, according to the Treasury's uh, number crunching. Um, that's going to have quite a big knock on in the financial services sector, isn't it? I think it will. I think this is quite a significant step from the Treasury here. I think, you know, the clampdown on um, I think bogus self-employment, they've referred to it as previously Treasury, mm. has had a huge effect on the BBC. There's been a number of cases, high profile cases of of um, people who work at the BBC having being um, the targets of HMRC uh, enforcement action over these arrangements with P um, personal service companies. Mm -hmm. um, so at the moment, it's just affecting really the public sector, but the move to the private sector, I think, will have a big impact. I think there's a lot of uh, financial companies who have consultants who are kind of at retirement age or just before retirement age and move to, to, to a consultant role whereby they'll not have to work full time, but come in for a few days. Mm. And I think a lot of them are using these arrangements now. So I think a lot of consultants are going to get hit by this. Mm. And I think that just ju judging by how much the, tre the Treasury estimates this policy to bring in, I think this will be quite a significant step from, from, from HMRC. Um, so yeah, that was quite, quite a big, big move. And I think it will have an effect on some of the advice, certainly tax advisors' clients, because I think a lot of them will be of that kind of age and mm. state and um, employment status where they might be affected by this. Sure. I would add that if you're listening to this and you're a financial advisor or a tax accountant, get in touch with us. Uh, tell us what you're doing to look at this uh, issue, if you're going to call it that. Um, thanks for your input on Jack, uh, on that, Jack. Um, before we go, I'm going to turn to you, Frank. The reason you're here. Um, you're going to talk us through your market analysis for the rest of this year. But I, I should just say that the last time you were in this studio with us doing a podcast was February. We'd had the kind of market correction, this sort of slight moment of, oh, my God. Um, what's happened since then, you know, in the markets? So, yeah, you, you always get me in when it's, when it's bad news. <laughs> Never good news. You know, I'm the harbinger of doom or something. Is there anything to be cheerful about? Is there anything to be cheerful? I'll come back to that. What's been going on? I think since February, which was a pretty significant wobble, uh, 
it was very short-lived, particularly in the US where this started. So in February, you had the tech companies, they shed about 10% of their value, and then immediately rebounded. And actually, coming into sort of mid-September, you had the large cap US growth index, the Russell 1000 growth, up 16, 17%. Come looking forward to another 20% year, that was a big stretch. You know, mm -hmm. I was writing at the time that mm -hmm. coming into the year, people said maybe double digit, very slim likelihood that we, that we get that for the year. So it hasn't really been any one thing that's triggered markets to, to fall. It's been lots of small things. People will point the finger at interest rates rising in the US, but the Fed has raised rates quite a lot and quite sharply mm. in, in the past six, six to nine months, more so than I was actually aware, in order to keep inflation in check. And everyone was sort of fine with this to a certain extent. And then suddenly, bang, with a few bad days on the stock market and, and originating really from the earnings season that we've got going on at the moment, which some of the bellwether companies were coming in and they weren't looking particularly good. It looks like corporate profitability isn't going to be as high as it once as it has been in the growth it's been experiencing in, in recent years. And that is it's a small trigger, but it's enough to set people off, given how astonishing the run has been in US equities, you, not in the UK, but in the US. Do you think the US equities run, though, the Trump the tax cut that happened at the start of this year? Do you think that has kind of masked a lot of these, the, the stock market position? Do you think that we've had a kind of a, a bump because of that and then now that's starting to fade? Ta the, the tax cut is definitely significant. I mean, the smaller companies in the US have been doing phenomenally well, the ones geared towards the domestic US. But do you think the markets were really reacting well to that at the start of the year and then that, now that's starting to, that effect's starting to fade because they've already priced it in? I, I think, I think they, were, they were certainly reacting well to it, but there's another side to those tax cuts in that the deficit in the US is also going up on the flip side. Something they're like not, 20 trillion? They're not taking in, yeah, exactly, not taking as much new money as they once were. So things are getting more costly. The US as a proposition isn't that great, despite the fact that we had growth numbers in for the third quarter, 3.5% for the US economy, which is enviable mm -hmm. if you're looking at that yeah. from, from this yeah. side of the pond. Yeah. And that is predicted to slow down in the, in the fourth quarter to about 1.8 maybe. I'm actually making that up, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> but certainly it's going to be, it's going to be you know, a lot lower in the fourth quarter. Yeah. We're certainly expecting that. Fears of a recession, I might add. You know, when I spoke to Trevor, Trevor Greetham from RLAM, you know, he, I mean, I don't know whether he's a multi-asset manager. I don't know whether he's being way too defensive. But, I mean, he was basically saying that once all this Trump stuff has worn off, tax, you know, tax cuts have fed through, that they're now worried about the US going south. I mean, recession. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know whether we're going to be in a recession anytime soon. The bull market has been so prolonged. And actually, wage growth has been pretty decent. That's the key metric you want to look out for particularly in the US. And if we are going to have a global coordinated recession, it's probably going to have to start in the US. Yes, the emerging, the emerging world, markets. Is, the emerging world is, is more significant than it once was. And you might point your finger at China and say, if China were really to slow down dramatically, mm. that would kick us that way. But because so much of the equity market growth has happened in the US, not in the emerging world, okay, the US economy is driving the globe at the moment. If we see that tail off significantly, that will probably be the trigger for a coordinated global recession. And you know, I think 10 years is a long time, it is probably coming, mm. whether or not it's gonna be in the next six months, you know, anyone's guess. I think stock markets are definitely really nervous though. So you've had, the, actually we're, we're in a correction right now, the FTSE 100 is 11% down mm. from its peak. Hasn't really been written about much 
in the broad media. You haven't seen headline news, FTSE enters correction, trillions wiped off. You haven't seen that because the news flow has been so strong on other things. You've had Brexit, you've had the budget. In the US, you've had the, the spate of um, pipe bombs, which, which fortunately didn't go off, but that was masking it. That would have been generally front page news because we've had such an extended rally. You would have seen 10% drop in the, in the S&P. It's not quite 10%. So you haven't had that you know, panic selling from Joe blogs. It's mainly been the investment community that's been aware of but it. But they've not been buying bonds, have they not been moving into fixed interest away from equities? Do you think they haven't, they haven't. I mean, the, the, the benchmark 10-year uh, has actually just wobbled around the 3% mark. It's still over 3%. So, I mean, it's been much of a muchness. I think there are key things to look out for this week. Thursday, Apple reports its results. So tech is the thing that's been ha hammered the most. Apple hasn't actually been hammered so much. Now, the third quarter is never the best quarter for Apple. It never, it never sells the most phones. But Apple's got a habit of surprising on the upside. But if it doesn't, stock market's where they are at the moment. Any amount of negative news coming out will be greeted very poorly by the stock market. And then on Friday, you've got non-farm payrolls in the US. That's the employment metric that they use over there. It's closely watched. Again, any negative news there, despite the fact that employment's, you know, amazing in the US as it is here in terms of you know, low unemployment, then that, that will be greeted pretty badly. Uh, and then looking forward to the future. Anything okay. to be cheerful about? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think Black Friday is coming up, Thanksgiving, huge day for Amazon. Amazon's another part. That's, Amazon itself has driven US equity market returns more than anything else. So if it has a bad Black Friday, if it's less than its prime day, which had mid-year, mid which now outsold the previous, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday collection that it is. So many names. I know, it's tedious. But if it has a, if it has a bad, bad Black Friday, then that could be a key, key sort of indicator that the US consumer is drying up and that, that could well push us into dark territory. Great stuff. Well, is it great? Who knows? <laughs> it might not be great, but thank you, Frank, for that analysis. Um, thank you both for being here. Uh, we're all now going to go and have a lie down on a bed of crumpled Treasury announcements, excess tax revenue sheets and empty Mars bar wrappers. But before we go, there's just time to say that if you enjoy our podcast, please do subscribe to it. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a review. Thanks, both of you. And until next time, thanks and goodbye. Mm -hmm.